Hello, and welcome to The Rundown, a weekly podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Eleanor Langford, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the week's biggest political stories with fellow Politics Home reporters and special guests from across Westminster. I'm here with our political reporter, Noah Hoffman, and this week we are joined by Conservative MP Caroline Noakes, who chairs the Women and Equality Select Committee, and Abana Opong Asare, Shadow Treasury Minister and Chair of the Labour Women's Network. Our topic this week, whether five years on from Pestminster scandal, fresh questions have been raised about the culture of sexism and misogyny in Parliament. At the weekend, the Mail on Sunday ran a story suggesting that Angela Rayner tried to distract the Prime Minister by crossing and uncrossing her legs. And it's also been reported that 56 MPs, including three cabinet ministers, are being investigated by parliamentary authorities following claims of sexual harassment. And then on Wednesday, several papers reported that a sitting MP had been seen watching pornography in the Commons chamber. Caroline, what do you think about all this? I hadn't appreciated it was five years on from Pestminster, and it really strikes me as we've not made any progress in that time. The Independent Complaints and Grievances scheme seems to have too many cases bogged down in the weeds, not making progress. And unfortunately, the stories of this week just reinforce the message that we still haven't got to grips with the cultures in Westminster. We know that there was a meeting of female MPs this week. Were you at that? Have you heard anything from your colleagues about what was said there? Well, look, I was at the 2022 committee, which actually is a brilliant forum for female Conservative colleagues to get together to exchange campaigning ideas, to talk about the challenges that we face as women in Westminster. This week we had the Chief Whip, the Leader of the Commons and the Chairman of the Conservative Party talking about the very issue of retention of women. How do you make sure that female MPs don't serve one less term than their male counterparts? How do we make sure that they feel supported and valued in the culture that is Westminster and for some of the startling, horrific revelations that came out during that meeting, I think it is fair to say that everybody in there sat in shock. And so, yeah, obviously this story came out on Wednesday morning that an MP had been seen by various MPs watching pornography in the chamber. I mean, how do you feel about that specifically? Like, what does this say about Parliament that someone could feel empowered to do that, watching pornography while sitting in the Commons chamber? Well, you wouldn't do it in any other workplace, would you? And it would be an instant disciplinary matter. And one of the MPs who was present that evening made that very clear, that in any other workplace they'd be suspended. And that constituted sexual harassment. Watching pornography in front of your colleagues is harassment in the workplace. So we have to address that. I'm angry, disappointed, horrified, as I think everybody is, that anyone would be stupid enough to think that that was was a respectable, responsible thing to be doing in the chamber. Of course it isn't. And it does say to me that we have to quadruple the efforts around training with everyone required to doing the valuing everyone training. Maybe that needs to be beefed up, needs to be more explicit. But did you really ought to have to do training to tell people don't watch porn in the chamber? That's not rocket science, is it? But I think, secondly, we have to make sure that the complaints and grievances scheme is reinforced, is made faster, and that colleagues male and female, members of parliament and staffers feel empowered to go and use that service to report. There's the big problem is that colleagues and staffers are still scared to report. 
One thing I want to quickly touch on is the story that I mentioned at the start, the Angela Rayner story, relating to a Tory MP who claimed that she was uh, crossing and uncrossing her legs to distract Boris Johnson. He obviously got a huge backlash at the weekend, and you're on the Labour benches. What do you think about that story? I mean, first of all, the fact that the story was written in the first place, yeah. I just thought it was outrageous to actually put that in writing, to publish it on page five of the Daily Mail, and also to the Tory MPs that fed that story as well, I think it's really concerning. I think it shows the nature and culture in terms of how women are viewed, particularly in public life, in politics. If you are a strong individual, people will try and, you know, find ways to kind of label you in, in a different way. And it's almost about, like, getting back in your box. Do not, like, rise so much. And, you know, I think Angela is is a very strong woman, but we also need to talk about the fact that I think also because she's working class as well, that is an added factor to it. You know, misogyny and sexism is nothing to be really surprised about in politics. Through my role as chair of Labour Women's Network, we do have a lot of women wanted to stand for public office, but unfortunately, as part of our training, we've had to incorporate things such as resilience training to prepare people for the fact that they're going to be facing a lot of sexism so they can be extremely resilient in that aspect. But I always feel, why is it being left to organisations like Labour Women's Network to put these measures in place? I think that Parliament should go a lot further to say that this is unacceptable. And I think that what Harriet Harman's mentioned, recommended in terms of looking at MPs' conduct and putting something in there in terms of looking at misogyny and also racism is something that needs to be implemented. I don't think people talk about this as much, but other things, factors that need to be looked into is additional barriers you may face if you have one or more two protected characteristics. So, for example, if you are a person, woman of colour, you will face additional barriers. You know, as a black woman, I do face barriers where, you know, people don't always take me seriously or they will talk to my staff and not talk to me or not make eye contact with me or, or talk over me. And then there's also other issues such as if you've got a disability, LGBTQ, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, also I mentioned class, any of the protected characteristics under the Equalities Act 2010, I think we need to look at that. And I know that not all of my colleagues talk about their stories because if they did you know, they wouldn't really be able to get work done because I'm sure a lot of us have experiences on a daily basis. Sometimes it's just little microaggressions, but it is also a form of, like, unacceptable discrimination that you would face in the workplace. And Abena, how is Labour as an organisation in terms of dealing with sexism and misogyny? Because we've heard a lot about where the Conservative Party is failing its female MPs. As a, as a Labour woman MP... How do you view the party's sort of complaints processes and understanding of the nature of the sexism that you and your female colleagues face? So, as you probably realise, in the last year, Labour Party's been looking at the whole sexual harassment complaints process because during the Me Too campaign, there was also the Politics Too campaign where loads of people talked about their experiences in politics. So that's been reviewed because there has been issues where it's taken quite a long time before the complaints process has gone through in terms of people reporting their concerns. 
Bex Bailey is, is an example of, of someone who used to be on the Labour Women's Network who talked about her experience. And so I think that needs to be kind of addressed. I think also what we've been doing for the Labour Women's Network is we've been trying to get more women to stand for public office because I think if you have more women in Parliament, that also helps shift and change the culture of how politics is. So, you know, the Labour Party now has 51% women, but also making sure you retain those women in those roles is really important. I'm not scared to kind of call things out and you've had to do it, you know, on behalf of people. I do feel that there needs to be something done, as Caroline has said, in terms of training across all the board, across all the political parties. But also there needs to be an acknowledgement that this is unacceptable. I think it's great that across the political parties, everyone has come together and said, you know, this is frankly quite unacceptable. But I do feel there are people that don't really understand the nature of, of this issue. And I don't want this to be something where we talk about it right now and then in a few weeks' time we've forgotten about it because I've completely forgot that it was five years since Sex Minister and those five years, what's happened since then? Well, that brings me to the next sort of topic of discussion I wanted to bring up. I have lost so much faith in change being possible and Parliament becoming a 100% safe and healthy working environment for women. As we've all just mentioned, it's been five years and this is still happening. And it's not happening once in a blue moon. It's like every few months, the latest sex pest is revealed. Do you have any faith, Caroline and Abena, that things can change? And what is needed for this to be the last conversation we ever have about this being a present issue rather than a historic one? So my observation would be, and I've been in Parliament 12 years now, is that it's got a lot better. It has improved. So that has to be a sign of positivity. I think a lot of that is driven absolutely by the point that Ben had just made about rebalancing the genders in there. We have got many more women now than there were in 2010. There is still a phenomenally long way to go before we get to a 50-50 parliament. But I think it helps. It helps shift the dial and the tone. But as I said, the independent complaints and grievances scheme, we need people to have confidence in that and to know that it's working. It needs to be quicker. The thing that really scares me is that you still find the victims afraid to come forward, the victims afraid of the repercussions on their career if they speak out. And in some instances, those victims are not young, shy, retiring people, they're older, experienced parliamentarians, they're people who have a platform and yet are still looking at going, am I brave enough to speak out against X, whoever they are? You know, they're very closely connected to the prime minister, to the whips, to you know the hierarchical structures within parliament. You're still looking at some really old fashioned language around the chief whip, the leader of the house. Even that mm. is off putting in itself mm. from coming forward, just the, the sheer titles, not the individuals, but the job titles that they hold. Bernard, do you have any thoughts on how change can actually happen so we don't need to keep having these conversations? I do think that things are starting to get a bit better where I do feel that people are talking about their experiences more. I don't think that 10 years ago people probably would have spoken about their experiences or talking about the fact they would have seen someone looking at porn in the chamber. So I, I think that's something that people are doing more, but it's about being taken seriously. That is the issue in terms of what happens when that information is provided? Is there going to be action taken? That's where there are gaps. I think sometimes there is a slow reaction to when people are reporting things. 
in terms of making sure some action is taken on, on that aspect. There are other challenges that I think could be looked at in terms of how we conduct ourselves in the chamber. You know, I've witnessed behaviours where I've seen female politicians speaking and I've seen like how they've been treated in, in the chamber. And I, I just think there needs to be kind of robust action taken on that to say that this is frankly quite un unacceptable. I have to say, when I came into Parliament, I kind of knew what I was getting myself into. But when you're in that situation, it can still be quite alarming. I did feel that we'd gone back quite a number of years, you know, that some of the traditions within Parliament, I think, could be modernised. I do think that also we need to look at how offices are run as well, particularly MPs' offices. We're essentially running our offices as a private office in terms of a private business. I think there needs to be a review in terms of that, in terms of HR kind of processes, because, you know, at the end of the day, as MPs, you're not here to, to run a private business. You're elected to represent your constituents. Mm. Yeah, I completely agree with that and, and everything you said, Bill, on the complaints procedure. Because in the last few days, I've been speaking with a lot of staffers from across Parliament, all the parties, and every single one has a story. And it's always usually about an MP. And, and the issue that they often raise is the power imbalance that if you're in your office and your MP is inappropriate, quite often their wife is the one that's dealing with the HR. We've had that in recent cases. Or if you're a new staffer in Parliament, you don't feel confident calling out behaviour by an MP because they're a member of Parliament. And you sort of touched a little bit on, on the hierarchy there. How can we rebalance these office structures, do you think? Like, what's a realistic way that we can improve the relationships between MPs, government and staff to make sure that people feel like they're heard effectively? I think that the way that our offices are run, it's left to us to implement our own structures and places. There is a HR team there and you know they are helpful but you're relying on going to them to look at what measures or structures you could put in your office or speaking to colleagues to see what they've done and I think that we need to review that because I don't think in many workplaces and you know I've worked in other workplaces this is a normal way to kind of operate and so you don't really have time as individuals to be looking at implementing practices within your office What's really important in terms of looking at the imbalance as well is listening to people's experiences and looking how that can be improved. You know, in our workplace, we've got unions as well, which are very kind of prominent within the workplace in terms of talking about how things could be, be structured differently. But I also want to talk about the fact that a lot of discussion has also been talked about the imbalance within, with staff as well. But I don't really think that a lot of MPs talk about their experiences in terms of reporting their concerns or their experiences of what they've gone through in Parliament. I think that could be because it's not really kind of recognised that, you know, as an MP, that you would face barriers as well. And I think that also needs to be looked into as well. I'll give you a really simple solution to some of the power imbalance. And nobody wants me to use the IPSA word. But actually, if staffers were employed directly by IPSA, so I'm still saying MPs should recruit, should advertise, recruit, should choose who they want to work for them. But then you could pass it over to IPSA, who would do the whole contract and HR function away from the MP. So there is no point in the process at which the MP is the line manager of an individual who might be making a complaint against them. And I think that that would give it the element of distance that we're all looking for. So you wouldn't ever be in a situation where a relatively junior staffer is perhaps going to make a complaint to their immediate line manager that could be the 
Member of Parliament's spouse, and then beyond that, the appeal process to the Member of Parliament. That just doesn't stack up. So I think IBSA often causes problems and challenges. It could also provide some solutions. And Caroline, there's been some reports in the press that some MPs are of the belief that sexist culture in the Conservative Party has got worse under Boris Johnson. Is that something you recognise or agree with? No, I don't think it has got worse under Boris Johnson. I think there has, for way too long, been a horrible underlying culture of sexism, misogyny, that is really difficult to challenge, really difficult to deal with. And I want to see a situation where we are working much harder to make sure that we recruit more women into the party and that we're addressing Problems like the ones that we're facing at the moment, absolutely head on, not kicking them into the long grass. You need to have swift and effective reporting, swift and effective disciplinary measures. And if that requires some some root and branch changes and a shake-up of the internal complaint system, then so be it. But you can't have a situation where female parliamentarians who have, in many, many instances, have risen through professional careers where they have known how to report, who to report to, have shown no fear of reporting anything in their previous existence, suddenly come into Parliament and are left scratching their heads about what will the repercussions be for me if I speak out against this. And if someone like me, who is relatively robust and takes few prisoners, still thinks, oh, if I name them, what will happen to me? You know, And I know that I'm being put in the frame for speaking to journalists about this porn issue and people are unhappy that I'm speaking out. Well, you know, blame me. Absolutely blame me. Blame the woman. That's what you always do. But if people weren't watching porn in the chamber, they wouldn't have to contend with me speaking to the media about how wrong it is that this is happening and how wrong it is that a fellow colleague was anxious about speaking out. And I would much rather people blamed me then they blamed her. And speaking of blame, another area of discussion that's been brought up, and Ben Wallace on the morning broadcast round was mentioning this, that the bars in Parliament and the sort of drinking culture is in part to blame for the sexism that happens. Now, Ellie and I have had our fair share of boozy late nights on the terrace. It's quite nice to be able to have a drink at the end of the day and look at the London Eye. I personally think that that view is incredibly misguided. I think what happens sort of on the terrace is a manifestation of a sexist problem that already exists rather than as a result of strangers bar. What do the two of you make of that? That's just making my blood boil right now. (laughs) Um, I I think that regardless of whether there is a bar or not, the sexism is there already. The alcohol may, you know, magnify it a lot. And I think it's a deflection from the addressing the culture within Parliament. I'm sorry, I'm fuming right now to hear that. And and it shows why we need to address this because people don't understand what we're talking about right now. And they're not listening to people's experiences, particularly women's experiences about how Parliament needs to change. It just kind of frustrates me and I, I don't agree with that viewpoint. I think that there's some really interesting questions and it was probably a decade ago my former colleague Sarah Wollaston spoke out about the drinking culture in Parliament and I said then 
actually look at what we have here organizations like the girl guides guide dogs for the blind the ymca come to parliament annually they hold a reception and they want to be able to have a glass of wine and that so i'm a huge opponent of saying parliament should become a, a dry ship and we'll do away with the bars because it's wrong that really great organizations come to parliament once a year and they want to celebrate being there i do think that we have to have a much more effective hr function maybe in the whips offices, maybe in Parliament itself, so that we identify people who maybe have a problem. And it's something I'm very conscious of, is that it's a really difficult, stressful environment. All of us, 650 MPs in that place, are doing a difficult job. And at the end of the day, we are only human. And so I think that we need to have a far more supportive culture so that we're actually reaching out to colleagues who are struggling and finding ways to help them navigate the challenge of effectively, as Abena put it, running your own business in Parliament, looking after your constituents, speaking on the issues that you care about and are interested in. And it's all a massive juggling contest where you do at times need support. And I don't think it's any solution to say, well, close the bars, that'll solve the problem. It won't solve the problem. My view on this is when I first came into Parliament, one of the things that was said to me by an older male journalist is that if you're going for drinks with MPs, better to do it on the estate than go to a bar somewhere else. Because obviously a huge part of our job is having conversations with MPs and meeting with MPs, and the vast, vast majority are absolutely fine. My personal view is if the parliamentary bars were shut, you're moving that drinking elsewhere. There's plenty of pubs around Westminster then this will just happen there rather than on the parliamentary estate. So better that it's on the parliamentary estate and there is some element of safety and there's police everywhere for one thing is a little bit of security than going to one of the pubs nearby and then something happens there and, and you, you're not as safe. That's the one thing that struck me when Ben Wallace said this morning. I don't know if you, you agree with that, Noah, as another journalist. Yeah, I agree with that, but also I very much agree with Callan's point that it's so lovely to have wonderful organizations come into parliament and to be able to celebrate the work that they do and have a glass of wine and because men make shitty comments that shouldn't be a reason to end it rather they should go get some education learn that women are just people who want to do our job and get by in the same way that they do then there won't be a problem one point that was made to me yesterday is that for the culture to change, one of the first things that kind of needs to happen is there to be peer pressure. That if somebody is making an inappropriate comment on the terrace over drinks or in the tea room with their colleagues, someone goes, that's not okay. And then that prevents them from making that comment again and then not thinking anything of it when they say it to someone and makes them uncomfortable. Do you feel within your own party, other MPs, particularly male MPs, because quite often the accusations are against male MPs, are supportive and do you think that they could be doing more to sort of call it out within their ranks? I think there are some male allies. I've got some male allies in Parliament. I know that I can talk about my experiences and they'll be very supportive. But I think it's something that needs to be done across the board. And there's sometimes people don't recognise what is happening. They don't recognise that this is unacceptable behaviour because it's so systemic or they're institutionalised. And sometimes you have to point it out and it kind of shocks me sometimes when I'm having to point stuff out and particularly when it's like racial bias. I find it easier a lot of the time to talk to my colleagues that are black and Asian about our experiences than my white counterparts sometimes because they don't recognise it. So, you know, it's easier to have those conversations about what needs to be addressed because obviously people are still uncomfortable about talking about race. And when examples of unconscious bias happen, 
whether it's about race or sexism, do you think that whether it's you or any other woman, whether they're black, Asian, Jewish, should just come out and say, look, what you said wasn't okay? Or how can those people deal with the situation? Because I find I'm Jewish. And if someone makes a comment that is very clearly anti-Semitic, but I know they don't mean to be, and I know they mean well, I feel like this is kind of awkward. Do I bring it up or do I just let it slide? And most of the time I let it slide. What do you usually do in those situations? It depends on, on the situation and the circumstances and also how busy I am. Yeah. So <laughs> if I'm going to be honest, there's been times where I've gone and reflected and then I've gone and spoke to the person to tell them how they made me feel and how it wasn't acceptable. There's times I've spoken about it with other colleagues and not always approached it because sometimes... It happens like the microaggressions or the biases happen on quite a frequent basis and you've got to choose your battles wisely because if I was to spend all my time talking about it every single day, I wouldn't be able to move forward or get my work done. Mm. But I think just generally as women and as women of colour as well, if I can add that to it, we're so resilient that to an extent that some of the stuff has become quite normalised. So when I've had emails come into my office... And my team have said, this is unacceptable. I've come to the point where I've just kind of normalised that kind of behaviour and I'm realising actually, you know, this is not normal, actually. You know, more needs to be done to kind of call it out or report it. Do you call out sexist microaggressions, Caroline? Yeah, I do, but Ben is absolutely right. It depends how busy you are. You know, sometimes I just look at it and go, I really don't have time to deal with this (laughs) now. It really profoundly depresses me that Ben will say that the things that come into her office, she's set the bar quite high, haven't you, as to what you'll tolerate. And I sometimes find that, you know, journalists love to come to see me and ask me, you know, what sort of abuse I've had online, via email, you know, what have colleagues said to me that I've regarded as unacceptable. I cancel out the trivia now. I always go straight in for, you know, blogs who sent me a death threat. Because actually, if you were to look at the microaggressions, the really unnecessary horrible things that people say to you and send to you you'd spend your entire life tied up in knots about it and I always say you know I'll just block it out I've got an incredibly incredibly thick skin nowadays you have to be gratuitously offensive now for me to even notice and that's a horrible place to be Mm. actually we wouldn't expect that from Mm. any man in private capacity you wouldn't expect them to just tolerate abuse and go oh never mind doesn't matter whereas we will shrug off Every day. We've touched on it throughout, but I just kind of like to finish, circle back to this MP that was watching Paul in the comments. It is now being referred to the ICGS rather than being investigated by the Whip's office. First of all, do you think that is the the right call? Does that feel like a deflection? Do you have a confidence that that process will be followed through? And what should happen to this MP? Because the point was made this morning that it's very hard to actually get rid of an MP. You can take the whip off them, but you can't get sack them. You can't kick them out of Parliament. I've had a number of male journalists come up with the suggestion, well, what if they just clicked on a link unsolicited and were you know, shocked and pulled by what they saw uh, and flicked it off quickly? I think the, the two colleagues that made reference to it in that meeting were quite clear that the individual was watching porn. It wasn't that blogs opened an email and shut it down quickly. And I sometimes, my iPhone will have my personal email account and it has my parliamentary email account on it. I perhaps ought to confess to a small addiction to a website called Shoeaholics. Um, and... <laughs> 
And those emails come into both my parliamentary account, they come into my personal account. Equally, I have parliamentary emails will go to my personal account. So look, I might flick open one of those in the chamber. Let me tell you, I shut them down really quickly because I don't want anyone to look over my shoulder and go, and Noakes was buying shoes <laughs> in the chamber. And so look, we all know, we all, we're all reasonably tech savvy. You can shut an email down really quickly. The allegation that was made was that they were watching porn, not that they glanced at an inappropriate image, not that they opened an email, it was watching. I'm really quite clear that that was the allegation that was made. So that we can understand that you might open something inadvertently, but I don't think anybody is not sufficiently tech savvy to shut it down instantly. Although that being said, a number of colleagues, if their phone starts ringing in the chamber, seem to find it impossible to put it onto silent. And I'm disappointed. I thought I would wake up on Wednesday morning to find that somebody had had the whip withdrawn. And that didn't happen. And we've seen the whip withdrawn from colleagues for a variety of reasons over the years and I thought this seemed to be fairly straightforward it was raised by one colleague it was corroborated by another that seems to me perfectly enough to withdraw the whip one colleague in that meeting made the point in a workplace this would constitute sexual harassment are we now saying that we're not brave enough to tackle sexual harassment head-on and it has to go off to the independent complaints and grievances service it could be months before anything is done so I'm disappointed that we've not seen the whip withdrawn immediately and are you confident that the process will lead to some repercussions are you happy with how it's been handled because some people have said that this is kicking it into the long grass slightly by handing it over to the ICGS yeah that's how I feel about it I think it is kicking it into the long grass and it's also not it's not shouldering the burden of responsibility of dealing with it and I think that the chief should have dealt with it immediately and Abana, does it speak to a sort of wider culture among some male MPs around invincibility I don't think it's fair to label MP all male MPs course, that way yeah I feel that the way it is at the moment it is labeling all male MPs because no action has been taken at the moment and I think it's a very dangerous situation to be in and I think it's undermining our democracy a lot it does make you look around and think what's going on here in parliament because as an as an outsider from what people are telling me they're like you know everybody's like that everyone's you know you know either got their fingers in the pie or they're all dodgy and that's what I'm really concerned about the damage to parliamentary democracy it's it's going to put people off in terms of who they see as their elected politicians you need to recognize how damaging this is by not taking any action on it Mm. action needs to be taken on it there does need to be an investigation into this in terms of whether you know what happened it is putting a label on a lot of male MPs in in a particularly bad way and some of my colleagues have said that yeah and it's Um, such a shame because we all know that there are so many male MPs who are are not like this at all and who do wonderful work mm. but it clearly is an institutional issue this issue of misogyny and sexism and are you happy with the process that's been started do you agree with Caroline that's maybe kicking it into the long grass referring it on I do think that also the the whips do need to to look into this as well but to be honest I don't know much about it Caroline knows more probably more than I do about what's going on behind the scenes on that well, I think the sad thing is I don't I don't know more about what's going on behind the scenes, but I think democracy is the loser, isn't it? And whether it's MPs with second jobs, outside earnings, whether it's porn in the chamber, we all get tainted with it. It crosses party divides, it crosses gender divides. I'm sure Abena gets exactly the same sort of correspondence that I do, which says you're all the same, you're all at it. Democracy is the best system that we've got. You know, none of us are going to say that we should be run by the church or run by the army. We don't want a police state. We have a democracy that we should be fighting 
to be proud of. We should be prepared to scream from the rafters, look, we have a brilliant democratic system, the mother of all parliaments, let's be proud of it. And if that means tougher action by the whips in a more robust independent complaints scheme, well, yeah, let's crack on and do that so that we can be proud of our democracy. One of the things that I'm worried about is I know that there are a lot of women that want to stand to be MPs. I'm also worried that this may put people off wanting to stand for public office because of the stories that they're hearing. And as Kamala said, you know, it's our democracy. The only way we can actually address this is if we start having more women standing for public office. But if we if we have women being put off by it, then we're going to go back a number of decades. It's not just Parliament. It's also other areas of public life as well, local authorities, local government. I think that also needs to be looked into who runs our campaigns, who does policies. It all just needs to be really kind of like diverse and... I think that there's been a huge focus on Parliament, which is important, but we just need to look across the board. That's all we've got time for this week, but you can read more on all the biggest political stories at politictime.com and by subscribing to our newsletter by clicking on the link in the top right corner of the website. Thank you so much to our fantastic guests, Caroline Noakes and Abana Afamasari, and to our political reporter, Noah Hoffman. Our editor has been Laura Silver. You can follow them on at Hoffman underscore Noah, at Laura Silver underscore, and I'm on at Eleanor Mia. Thank you for listening and please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to keep up to date. If you've enjoyed it, then leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch, reach out to us on Twitter at politicshome.com or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, have a great weekend and be sure to listen again next week. I've been Eleanor Langford and this has been The Rundown. <laughs>